Okay, let's get back here. Everybody, let's have a seat. Uh, we are in part five, I believe. Part five of a series called On the Road Again. We're going through the book of Acts, and we're recalling it On the Road Again because our main character, his name is Paul, Paul the Apostle, you've probably heard of him. He goes on a trip around the Mediterranean Sea, and he comes back, and now he's on a second trip. That's why we're calling this On the Road Again. And uh, uh, first, I want to say, hey, welcome, Westlight. Uh, if this is your first time, then uh, we're hoping that everything we talk about today, we will be referring to some things from the past. So uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you could just go through our library of sermons and Peninsula Hope. We're excited that you're joining us also. And again, we're going to be referring to some things from last week, which that sermon didn't get recorded properly. So uh, you might, it, might have to read some parts on your own. But uh, today, uh, we want to start by asking this one question, which I think a lot of us could re uh, um, relate to. What do I do when I feel alone in my failures? Have you ever been in the situation where you try and you get knocked down, and you try and you get knocked down? Maybe for you, it's a test. You take a test, you fail, you study even harder, and you take a test and you fail again, and you feel like, am I the only person that can't pass this test? Or maybe you're like me where you take your driver's test when you were 17, and, and uh, they fail you after the first turn, and then you're like, okay, I need to practice more. You get behind the wheel, you practice, and then you're like, okay, I'm ready for the driver's test, and then you get in behind the wheel with the, you know, at the DMV, and then you know, you get further than you did last time, but you fail again, and you're like, oh, man, I think after the third or fourth time, they make you take the written test again, and, you know, but you feel like, am I the only person that doesn't, that isn't safe in this world to drive? You know, like, have you ever been in that situation where maybe after relationship after relationship, you try and try again, maybe this time this relationship will work, or maybe this time my marriage will work, and it doesn't work out, and you feel like, am I the only person that has this issue? Well, we're going to be looking at what God is doing behind the scenes when this happens. And today we're going to be talking about two points, two different points that comes from one story. So um, if you're like, hey, Kotz is talking about something different now, that's because there's two points to this story. Uh, but I'll come back together at the end. Okay, so in order to address this question right here, uh, we're going to start off by recapping what Paul's been doing so far in this story. So here's the map, because I love maps. It takes place over here on the, this side of the Mediterranean, on the east side. And from Antioch, Paul travels through here. That's Galatia and Phrygia. He goes to Troas, makes it to Philippi, Thessalonica, and to Berea. And so far, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, and if not, here's a quick recap. He's been going to each place communicating two messages because he really wants to talk to a specific group of people called the Jews, which he is one of them. And he basically wants to tell them, hey, guys, you've been reading the Old Testament because that's the only testament that existed at that time. He said, guys, we've been reading the Old Testament for a very long time, and there's this prophecy of a Messiah, a chosen one that's going to come. I'm here to tell you guys, because it happened in Israel. It was localized in Israel, so you guys don't know out here, but he actually showed up. The Messiah showed up. So that's the first thing he wanted to tell everybody. And the second thing he wanted to tell everybody was, and the message that he had for all of us is, you know those, all those weird rules in the Old Testament? Yeah, we no longer have to follow them anymore. There's a new way of connecting with God, and it's not by following those rules anymore. But the result of that has been really interesting because there's been like this pattern that's been happening in all these places that he stopped along the way. First, Paul, he preaches the gospel. What I just told you, those two points of the message. He's like, Jesus is the Messiah, and there's a new way of connecting with God, okay? But then the response to that has been good, which is number two. 
it's mostly women and non-Jews, the Gentiles, that they're like, yeah, we agree with you, Paul. We're on board with you. We want to do what, what, what you say to do because we agree with your reasoning. But there's a, small, and there's a small group of Jewish men who are like, yeah, we're on board with you too. But the majority of Jewish men are like, no, we don't agree with you. As a matter of fact, number three, they disagree. These Jews, Jewish men, they disagree and they're angered by it. They're like, not only do we disagree with you, Paul, we're furious and we're going to do something bad, which is number four. They often start a riot. And when they start a riot, like they're turning, it's not just them. They go into the city marketplace and they try to recruit some bad actors from the market. They people, they probably didn't even haven't met before. They bring him out. It's like, let's start a riot because we disagree with Paul. I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, Paul, I, I, I think you're wrong. I disagree with you. It's another thing to say, I disagree with you so much that I'm going to go and get some people that have a criminal background and we're going to bring them out and we're going to start fires and, and dumping trash on the streets. I don't know what they did as a riot, but they did some pretty bad stuff, right? And usually at the end of the riot, you know, you'll be like, okay, that was bad. But it gets worse because then Paul is blamed for the riot. What is this ruckus? And these people say, oh, that was Paul. And usually that led to either Paul being imprisoned, being threatened, his life is being threatened, right? We read some about some of those examples. And then eventually he gets kicked out of the city. They're like, please leave. We don't want you here anymore. I mean, they could have just started with that, right? Like, we disagree with you, just leave. But, but apparently they have to start a riot and tear down the city before they kick him out. Now, there are exceptions to this, the, these five points. But in general, this is what's been going on. But at the end of this list, usually Paul leaves the city after establishing a church. He's like, well, that was scary. My life was on the line, but at least we planted a church here, right? And that's been the pattern in every place he stopped so far. Then he goes from Berea. Let's go back to the map. He starts from Berea, and then he travels south to this place called Athens. You've probably heard of that place. It's in Greece. Back then, it was part of a place called Achaia. And in Greece... Um, in, in, in Athens, he actually gets a chance to do the exact same thing, except he's not talking to Jews this time. He's talking to a bunch of Greeks. And then today, we're starting the next section, chapter 18 of Acts, and this is how it starts. After this, Paul left Athens and went to a place called Corinth. And you're wondering, wait a minute, what happened in Athens? Are we going to skip the part of the book of Acts that talks about Athens? Well, if you've been with us for the past few months, you'll know that I talked about Acts chapter 17, through 16, uh, chapter six, 17 verses 16 through 34. And here's a quick recap of that, okay? And, and Paul reasoned with the Greek scholars and philosophers. So he stood there, and if you guys remember this sermon, um, he stood there and he basically had this audience of people who were Greek philosophers and scholars. And he basically didn't use any Old Testament scriptures. He used their own poets and own thinkers and quoted them to make his case. And he did a pretty good job. And so Paul must be patting himself on the back, right? But as a result of this, you thought it was good, but it was actually bad because no churches were established in Athens. So that's what has been going on so far. Now, let's kind of recap what I just recapped so you guys understand what's going through Paul's mind, okay? He's been rejected by his own people, the Jews, He's been blamed for riots. His life has been threatened. He's been imprisoned every once in a while. He's been flogged. He's uh, been stripped naked. He's been embarrassed. He's been kicked out of cities. And now he can't even plant a church in Athens. So, Paul, what do you think he's going through right now? 
what is he going through? What's going on in his mind? Like every place he's gone to, he's been rejected. Every place he's been to, his life's been threatened, except for Athens. Every place he's been to, his, he felt like it's not safe to be here. He's like, do I have no home because nobody wants to hear my message? Well, in chapter 18, we find out, next slide, he went from Athens about 40 to 50 miles west to a place called Corinth. Now, this place is an interesting place because in that region, it's the biggest city. It's the wealthiest city. And Paul enters the city feeling extremely discouraged. You know, for the first few times he's been rejected in these cities, he, you must be thinking like, man, he, he, it's too bad Paul got rejected, but he must have thick skin because he goes to the next city and does the exact same thing. He's trying to tell people, like, you need to bless your city. You need to let women in. You need to let non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, in. And he always gets kicked out. He always feels like he's being rejected. He must have really thick skin. He must, he must be used to this. But as it turns out, he's not that used to it. That all this rejection has finally, it's like up to here. He's like, I can't take it anymore. So while he was there, there, he met a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So he shows up in Corinth and he's feeling alone. He's feeling like, man, nobody gets me. And then he meets this person, Aquila, and his wife uh, Priscilla. And as he's talking to them, he finds out that these people used to live in Rome and because at the time Emperor Claudius kicked out all Jews out of Rome, that they've been displaced. And you're like, hey, we have something in common. I guess I'm not that alone after all, right? Like, I've been kicked out of many cities. You've been kicked out of Rome. We're like BFFs now, right? That's what he thinks is going on, okay? And then on top of that, we discover this. Next slide. Paul went to see them, Priscilla and Aquila, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. I don't know if you guys knew this, but Paul had another job. Because back in those days, rabbis, they weren't allowed to make money off of teaching the Bible. So usually, rabbis had another trade. And for Paul, it was tent making. And the Greek word here, because this is originally written in Greek, um, the word tent making doesn't mean they just make tents. They make outdoor, um, they use outdoor, they make things for outdoor living. So tents, one of them, but they also make towels and mats. And, you know, they usually use goat hair to weave it together and it becomes waterproof. That was his trade. And it turns out he meets somebody who is displaced from Rome, who is also a tent maker like he is. So he's like, wow, we have so much in common, right? And so because he was doing that on the side, he's able on the weekends to go to, to synagogues and talk to people about Jesus. So that's what he does next. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Like, guys, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you that we don't have to follow those Old Testament rules anymore. And then, as Paul expected, the response is this. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, and at this point, Paul's like, oh no, here we go again. Here, it's another riot. People are going to strip me naked. People are going to put me in jail. People are going to be flogging me. Oh man, I'm so sick of this. <sighs> so you know what Paul does different this time? This is what he does. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, shaking off your, in the Jewish culture, when you're like, I'm done with this place, you shake off the dust off your clothes and your sandals. It's your way of saying, you know what? If I'm not wanted here, well, before you reject me, I'm going to reject you. Yeah. 
Yeah, right? It's like, I, I had enough of this. So what he does is, he's like, you know what? And if you think that I owe you something here, you can have everything that I took from you back, including the dust that I picked up while I was here. So the, he shakes his clothes and his sandals. He's like, there, you can have it all back. See you later. And then he doesn't just say, see you later. He also says this, your blood be on your own hands. I mean, he's pretty angry. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's like, you Jews... And I'm one of you, you know, like, I, I've had it up to here. All this rejection after, for this past year that I've been on the second trip, I, I, it's just too much for me. I can't take it anymore. I, I've had it enough. I'm done with you guys. If you're going to ruin yourselves, be my guest. It's not my responsibility anymore. Can you just feel the tension, the anger that's inside of Paul right now? Like, we thought he was this thick-skinned guy, right, that he could get through any kind of, you know, criticism, but at this point, he's like, I, I can't take it anymore. So to say the least, Paul is discouraged. And we know this because Paul, eventually after leaving Corinth, he wrote a letter back to the church in Corinth. And this is what he said about his first exposure to, to, the, to the people of Corinth. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, meaning when I came here, I didn't really have much in common. I didn't have any good arguments because you guys are so different than me. Like where I come from, I use the scriptures and people listen to me. They're like, oh, Paul knows so much about the Bible. But in Corinth, you guys don't care that I use the Bible because you don't even know about it, right? So when I came here, I didn't sound eloquent to you or that I didn't even seem like I, was, I had any wisdom because we're just mismatched in culture. Right? And then he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. In other words, when Paul came to Corinth, he was feeling discouraged. Oh, next slide. He was feeling discouraged, he was afraid, and he felt weak. And not only that, I'm going to add to this list, he felt like an outsider. And you're like, well, where did you get that from that passage, Kotz? Well, it's not so much from the passage that we know that Paul felt like an outsider. It's because of the cultural context. So I'll give you a quick lesson on what Corinth used to be like, okay? So Corinth was founded by the Greeks long, long time ago, long before Paul was there, like, like hundreds, maybe a 1,000 years before this. But about 200 years before Paul arrived there, the Romans came in and destroyed the place. The whole place was in ruins. And for about 100 years after that, it was just desolate. They didn't build anything on top of it. But about 100 years before Paul showed up, so about like 64 BC, eventually Julius Caesar said, you know what, we should build something there. So the way we're going to build something there is we're going to send some of our people there and make it into a Roman colony. Now, if you guys remember Philippi, which is another city that Paul visited, I told you guys that back then what Caesar did was he took a lot of his soldiers and retired soldiers and he placed them in Philippi. And so he had a bunch of loyal people living there. Well, when he came to Corinth, the Caesar, he placed slaves, ex-slaves, and the poor and had said, okay, now try to build a civilization here. So this place was occupied by people who didn't really have any life skills on how to survive on their own. Okay, so that's, that's the context there, okay? Now, let me show you a modern-day map of Corinth. This is Corinth. Now, if you look, there's this line that goes through the middle right here. Do you see this line? Here, next slide. There's a zoom in. There we go. This is a canal. If you want to get from point A to point B, this canal was built in 1883, okay? And in order to get from point A to point B, you had to travel from here all the way around 400 miles just to get to point B. Or you could go across here, and that's only four miles. 
But like I said, this canal wasn't built until the 1800s. So what did they do back then? Well, these slaves and ex-slaves and these poor people, when they got there, they're like, hey, there's a lot of money to be made here if all these sailors come through Corinth. So what did they do? They, they actually paved a road. You can even go there today and you'll find this. They paved a road that's you know, made out of stones all the way from point A to point B. And it's, there's, um, they, they took pig fat and they rubbed it on there so it's slippery. And they put a bunch of logs on there. And as soon as the boat came into the harbor, they would start yanking on the boat and they'll pull it onto shore. I'm serious about this. And they will try to slide it across this way all the way to point B. And this is in the middle of a residential area. So just imagine, wake up in the morning. It's like, it's morning. You look out the window and you see like a boat coming across your window. Like, huh, I don't see that. <laughs> okay, that's the kind of place it is. And so because of that new technology they had back then, there were a lot of merchants that showed up there. A lot of people are like, hey, there's a lot of sailors come through here. So we want to do everything we can to sell them food, sell them goods, sell them whatever they want. And so over a short amount of time, less than 100 years, it became one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. Like this is Corinth, okay? <laughs> and there's a, um, a historian back then called Stabro. And he basically records for us that, that this city grew really fast and it was one of the biggest and successful cities in that time, in the first century. So that's, I'm trying to paint a picture for you here, okay? And so the thing that you wanted most in that culture, kind of like our culture, is money. Money was the, the thing that spoke the most, right? And so money, the first point I want you to know is this. Money was the measure of greatness. Now, this is foreign to Paul, because Paul came from a world where being pure, clean, People who know scripture, people who have an education, those were the people who were like the elite of the society, right? But when Paul showed up, he realized that he's at the bottom because he's poor. In a city where it's all about success stories, whoever does great business, you're at the top. You're the respected people. I don't care if you know how to read, because even if you can read, if you don't have any money, then you're at the bottom. And that's Paul in this story. So he feels like an outsider. But that's not the only reason why he felt like he didn't belong there. The second reason is this. Here's a picture of what Corinth looks like today. Now, remember, this place was started by the poor, by the slaves and ex-slaves, right? And these people, when they arrived there, they lived as they pleased because they were like, no more master over me. Uh, I'm poor, but I have my land now, so I can do whatever I want. They basically did whatever they wanted, right? And because of that, and because they built that road in the middle that takes ship from point A to point B, um, a lot of sailors came. And you know, like I said, they were like, let's do business with these sailors because we can make a lot of money off of them. Well, what they also discovered is, is that these sailors, well, they're all men. And if there's a whole bunch of male sailors here, what do you do? Oh, we can make a lot of money by, by having a lot of prostitutes. So if you see this mountain up here, this is called the Aco Corinth. That's what it's called right there. Up there, this little bit right there, that is called the Temple of Aphrodite. And that same uh, historian, Stabro, uh, Strabo, <laughs> Strabo, his name is S-T-R-A-B-O, Strabo. <laughs> he records for us that up there, and maybe they had some si uh, satellite um, temples down here because not everybody can make it up there. And in all, they had about over a thousand prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And as a matter of fact, the whole world, at the, the whole, the whole uh, Corinthian culture was so engulfed in this that they even came up with words like, if you've been Corinthianized, that means that you've become immoral. Or if somebody calls you a Corinthian girl, 
that means that you're a prostitute. I mean, if they start using your city name as an adjective to show how immoral you are, then you, you made it, right? So it's like, think of it like this is like Vegas, except, you know, worse, way worse, like 20 times worse. Okay, so remember, Paul comes from Israel, a person who's extremely religious. So the first point was this, money was the measure of greatness, but on top of that, we also discovered that this place where immorality was normal, it was the norm. People were just immoral. So when Paul arrives at Corinth, he's like, yeah, this is totally not my world. And this is why I would say that he felt like an outsider. So not only does he show up to the city and feel like, I don't belong here, he goes to the one place that he's familiar with, which is the synagogue, and he gets kicked out of there. People want to get abusive with him, right? And so he's like, I have nowhere to go here. I, I'm alienated from the city. I feel alone. I'm also alienated and alone when I go to the synagogue. And so he's feeling alone. He's feeling like a failure. So what does Paul do after he cursed them out? Well, verse 7 tells us what he does. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So he's like, I'm done with you. Your blood is on your hands. I'm out of here. He leaves the synagogue and he stands outside. He's like, what am I supposed to do now? I have nowhere to go. I am so alone. And then a guy taps on his shoulder and says, hey, you want to come to my house? And it's like next door to the synagogue. And it turns out it belongs to this guy named Justice. And, and it turns out Justice was a Greek. He was not a, a Jew. But he was going to the synagogue at the time. And he basically agrees with everything Paul said. So he's like, hey, if you want, you can start meeting at my house. And so he kind of takes up on that offer, right? And let's see how that turned out because there's a result of this. And the result of this is that many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So that's like, cool. Like Paul's like, hey, finally, things are starting to look good. But he's still feeling alienated because his people next door, the Jews, and the city of Corinth, he just doesn't feel like he belongs. And so right when he was about to give up, he has this vision, and this is how that goes. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. He's like, Lord, is that you? It's like, yeah. And what else do you have to say? For I am with you. I am with you. God is with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul's like, really? Many people in the city? There's a lot of people like me in the city. There's a lot of people who are for me in this city. I have not met them yet. And God's like, yeah, because you haven't met them yet. You just got here. So Paul is feeling discouraged. He gets a vision. And then he stops and he looks back at everything that God has provided so far since he's been to Corinth. And so let's take a look at what he's, God has provided for Paul so far in this story. First, he met Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers, just like Paul. And not only that, they've been displaced from their home in Rome in the same way that Paul's been kicked out of every city he's been to so far. So he's like, oh yeah, there are some people here that are like me. And then he meets, after he leaves the Jewish synagogue, he meets Titius Justus, who is a worshiper of God. It's like, oh, here's a person that agrees with everything I'm teaching. Okay, and then we also discover that he made, new, there's new believers, new converts. In verse 8, it said that, that people that Paul reasoned with, they said they believed and they were baptized. So like, okay, there's a smaller, small community here of people, okay? And then in the vision that he received, he says, oh, by the way, God says, I'm with you. And not only that, in that same vision, he says, oh, by the way, there's, next slide, oh, that there's many people of God in this city that you haven't met yet, but you're going to see them soon. So from going from, I failed every single city, I failed at every city I've been to, 
Now I'm going to Corinth where I feel even more alienated. He comes to this realization that, well, maybe God is working behind the scenes. Maybe I am not alone. Maybe there's some other people here that I could connect with that I haven't met yet. And as a result of this, this is what happens to Paul. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, 18 months, teaching them the word of God. This realization for him helped him come to the conclusion that, you know what, maybe I could make it here for a longer extended amount of time. As a matter of fact, this is the place that he's been the longest so far. Every city he's been to, he's been there for maybe a few weeks, a few days. But here, he's here for a year and a half. And the wind is blowing really hard. <laughs> so this is what Paul has discovered. is that God is always at work to make sure that you are not alone. Always. God's been working behind the scenes. He's been orchestrating. I mean, we might think, oh, it's just by accident. It's by coincidence that we had um, that Priscilla and Aquila just showed up out of nowhere. There was a gust of wind, and we had to take a pause. Sorry for this inconvenience. Okay. So God is always at work to make sure that you are not alone. And it might seem like it was coincidence that, that somebody, a, a, tent, a tent maker showed up, and not only that, they were also displaced from their home city, right? It might seem like it's, right? Or it might seem like it's a coincidence that he stepped out of the synagogue, and as he turns around, he finds out that next door to the synagogue is a place where he could call home. Like, you might think these are all coincidence, but according to Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and for Paul, they're convinced that this is God working behind the scenes, orchestrating so that Paul would not be alone, that when he was feeling discouraged, that God would bring people who are like him around him to make sure that he was okay. <clears throat> in other words, you are not alone. And so maybe you guys have been in situations lately where you felt like, man, I, I feel like nothing's been working out for me. Failure after failure, mistake after mistake, bad fortune after bad fortune. God is working behind the scenes to make sure that there are people around you to encourage you. And maybe, you know, this orchestrating of God has led you to here. Maybe you're in a situation where you're like, yeah, failure after failure, I'm so discouraged, I feel so alone. Maybe Westlight is the community that you've been looking for. Or maybe it's your turn to say, hey, I want to join a life group. Whatever the case is, we want you to know that the church exists to provide community. This is the point that Luke is trying to make in this, in this story, is that when Paul was alone in, in Corinth, at least when he felt alone, God was making sure that he was establishing a community for him so that he didn't feel alone anymore. Because going through life alone was never, ever God's intent for your life. But then you might be thinking, like, wait a minute, so is that the whole purpose of church? The whole purpose of church is to provide community to people? Like, I mean... You're telling me that the church is like a club, right? Like it's like a secret club, you know, where you can start creating your own echo chambers. And we've, like, we've seen that played out in politics and the news in the past few years where some churches, they start talking about issues as if they're right and the whole world is wrong, right? Like we're sick and tired of that kind of culture. Are you seeing that's what the church is? Well, the church is a community that provides community to people who are feeling alone, but that's not the only purpose of the church. Because we find out in the next part of the story that the church is much more than that. So let's move on to the next verse. Now, while Gallio was proconsul, proconsul is like the governor, he was the governor or proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. So Paul's like, oh, it was a great year and a half being here, but I think I'm, you know, my, I'm, I'll stay my welcome now because people are angry. Okay, 
So cue the riots, cue the you know, arrest, cue, you know, here we go again, right? But these people, these Jews who've been plotting this for a year and a half now, they decide the best course of action to get rid of Paul is to take him to court. So here is Paul being dragged into the courts of Gallio, and now the prosecutors, that's the Jewish men, they're about to make a case. This is what they say. This man, they charged, is per persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And by law, we're talking about the Old Testament laws. We're not talking about the laws of Corinth, okay? He's bas they're basically saying this. This guy named Paul, he showed up here a year and a half ago, and he started saying things like, oh, you don't have to get circumcised anymore. Oh, um, you don't have to go through those cleansing rituals anymore. Um, yeah, by the way, let anybody who wants to come to God, come, come to God. It's like, you know how much they're messing with our culture? Like, this guy Paul, he's been... He's been ruining our religious house of worship. Like, I, this guy needs to be arrested. I mean, that was basically their argument, right? Now, so Paul's like, oh, well, I need to defend myself. So he stands up and he's about to speak, and this happens. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, like Paul killed somebody or something like that, right? It would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But... Since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. <laughs> so he's like, you know, you guys are talking about like Old Testament stuff and that, I don't get that stuff. And as a matter of fact, what do you guys do over there in your own little church huddles over there, like in your church and in your synagogue? It really doesn't affect the city of Corinth. So you, you do your own thing. Like I'm not gonna make a judgment. There's no crime here, right? In other words, this is what Gallio is really saying. He's saying this, what you do in that house of worship of yours makes no difference to our city. And at this point, Luke is trying to point out something to us in this story. Remember, as a Jew in the synagogue and both as a Christian in a church, you guys have the same purpose. We have the same purpose. The purpose is this. If you're a Jew, your purpose is to restore shalom. And we talked about how shalom means to restore the world as it was meant to be. That means people getting along with each other, people caring for one another, people forgiving each other, restoring God's creation, more green, right? <laughs> the purpose of the church is also the same. We use different terminologies, but our call is to experience heaven together. It's supposed to be a, a world where we're like, hey, any racial divide, we're supposed to bring them back together. If there's you know, problems, we're supposed to restore them. If there's trouble in God's creation, we're supposed to help restore that too. Like, the call of a Jew and for a Christian is to bring shalom or to experience heaven on earth together, but they're so busy trying to prove that they're right or that the other is wrong, they lost the purpose of what a church or synagogue is supposed to be. And that's what they realize here at this trial. When Gallio is like, what you guys do in that house of worship of yours makes no difference to the city of Corinth, it was a big slap in both of their faces. As a matter of fact, I think I shared this guy's name last week. He's the greatest, one of the greatest scholars of the book of Acts. His name is Dr. Willie James Jennings. This is what he says about this passage. What worries them, we're talking about the Jews and Christians in this story, does not worry Rome. What concerns them, the houses of worship, does not concern Rome. Like, you guys are so far apart from the world that you're living in that you are making no difference. And then he continues. He says, diaspora, which are the synagogues that are dispersed around the Mediterranean Sea outside of Israel. These people must always make the case that their well-being is aligned with the well-being of the state. 
Like, the reason you exist as a synagogue in, around the world is, is like, can I remind you that, yeah, the invaders came into Israel, and because of that, you're dispersed throughout the Mediterranean Sea, but that was part of God's plan. You guys, Jews, are dispersed around the Mediterranean Sea so that you could bring shalom to the community that you're a part of, right? But right now, your well-being as a, as a, as a synagogue is not aligned with the well-being of the community that you're a part of. And then he continues. He says, and in this regard with these upstart disciples, we're talking about the church now, they have failed. You guys are so busy trying to be right. The church and the synagogues are too busy trying to say, it's us versus you. There's the world out there and there's us on the inside. And because of that mentality, you have lost your effectiveness in the community that you're a part of. The church is supposed to be restoring relationships, tearing down walls that divide society, but instead you're building up walls now. So in the second half of, the, of this chapter that we're studying right now, the question again arises, what does the church exist for? And the question is asked because we have to ask ourselves, is this, does the church exist to build itself up? Like, is the goal of a church to become the biggest church in, in the community so that we feel like we have more, a louder voice in the community? Like, does the church exist to build itself up? Does the church exist so that we have a place where we can always agree with one another so that we could be an echo chamber? You see, originally, in the first half of the chapter, we talked about how the church existed to provide community. And that's true, but that's not the only reason we exist. We don't exist just so that we could prove ourselves right. Dr. Jennings, he continues and he says this, if there is a case to be made to the state, it is about the well-being of its citizens and of the creation itself. The church should be obsessed with making sure our community is better. And then he concludes with this right here. He says, we press for the flourishing of the world and not for the flourishing of the church. We're not here to build ourselves into a mega empire church. That's not what a church is here for. The church doesn't exist so that we become the most rich nonprofit organization in the block. That's not our calling. Our calling, Dr. Jennings will, will argue, is to be like Jesus. Jesus gave himself up. He emptied himself because of his love for humanity. And if we, the church, are supposed to be an extension of Jesus, we also aren't supposed to be doing everything we can to build ourselves up, although that's important. We're supposed to be using our efforts, maybe at your workplace, there's somebody that's in need and you say, I'm here to help you. I'm not asking anything in return, I'm just here to help you. Or maybe, maybe you're at school and there's somebody that's being marginalized. As a church, we're supposed to be out there caring for those people to let them know you're not alone. So to summarize the two points, it seems contradictory. The first one is this. The church exists to provide community. Yes. If you are feeling alone, we are here. We are here. Like, maybe this is our new home. You could, you could be a part of this community. But the second point that Luke makes is, is that the church exists for the flourishment of its neighbors. So there's people on the inside of the church, and there's people on the outside of the church. What does the church exist for? I mean... The question is, does the church, next slide, does the church exist for Christians or the people outside the church? Are we supposed to be pouring our budget into making sure that the people of Westlight are taken care of? Or are we supposed to be 
encouraging you to spend your money outside the church to help the people who are in need. And if you've been with us from the beginning of the book of Acts, what you might have discovered is that this question right here is tricky because it's not worded correctly. Because every time I say the word church, we're assuming that it's a building. You see, because the church doesn't exist for Christians, what we discover is that the Christians are the church. The people, you, 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 you guys are all the church. We are the church, and we exist to bless the world outside, the outside community. We're here to bless our neighbors. So while you're here, we're going to pour into you. We're going to teach you. We're going to love on you. We're going to provide community for you. But that isn't so that you could just, it just stops with you. It's so that when you go back to work tomorrow, or tomorrow is the day off, 4th of July, but when you go back to, or maybe tomorrow you do go to work, or tomorrow you meet with people like family members that you usually don't hang out with, right? We bless you here at church so that you could go and bless the people you come in contact throughout the week. We, we give you, we, we pray for you, and we have a prayer team that would love to pray with you so that whatever you're dealing with, that you would know that you're not alone in that struggle so that when you go into the world, you could pour it out into the people around you. The church exists, and we are the church. We exist to bless the community outside of us. And so that's what this story is. The story of Paul going to Corinth is his realization that he needs a community, and that community is the church. But at the same time, the church exists to bless the city of Corinth, and they failed at doing that. They failed so much that Gallows are like, yeah, I don't care what you guys do because it makes no difference to us. Imagine if the church and the synagogue were there blessing the poor, caring for people, people who didn't meet the expectation of being a rich merchant, but the people who came and failed and say, hey, are you alone in your failures? Well, you're not alone. Come over to our church and we'll take care of you. And when they took care of them, they'll go back into the world and will bless the people that they come in contact with. That is what the church is supposed to be. Amen? All right, let's pray.